<laughs> no. Hey, it's been great to have uh, Jason, Lauren, Jim speaking. Uh, I just enjoyed the messages that they shared too, and I heard good comments from many of you too. Uh, it's wonderful to have a staff team where we can do that and to have different voices speaking from God's Word and sharing the truth and applying it to life. Today we're going to be back in Second Chronicles doing a couple more messages here. This one, we're going to look at chapters 28 to 32 and talk about another revival that took place under a man named Hezekiah who was the king of Judah. And we'll set the stage for that and then talk about what God did in that time as well as another historical example of revival in our country. So let's begin with prayer. Father, as we come to you today, thank you for your word. It is timeless, it is powerful, and it speaks to our needs. And God, when we think about the topic of revival, you know the state of the church, and you know what's going on in our country, and you know how much we need a fresh wind of your Holy Spirit to blow across this land again. And God, it always starts with your people. It starts with the church. So would you even move in our midst today, move in our hearts and stir us up to pray, to be obedient to what you ask. In Jesus' name, amen. I'd ask you to just keep your Bible open. We're gonna come to those passages as we go along. But let me begin with this question. Have you ever found yourself going the wrong way on a one-way street? Yeah, that's one of those things we hope never happens to us. I know when Gail and I were uh, in uh, Scotland and we were going to drive on that vacation and do that, I was really concerned about driving on the other side of the road and would I just sort of absentmindedly sometime go back to, you know, where we drive in America on the right-hand side. And, you know, that was one of those things that I felt like I was just extra sensitive the whole time. Fortunately, it went, it went just fine and it was okay. But I heard some stories here in Lindstrom when we were doing the road construction, changing Highway 8 into two one-ways here, that there were people that would get mixed up on that and just kind of forget and absentmindedly turn the wrong way and you'd see people on the sidewalk waving them down or shop owners that are like, oh no, listening for a crash, wondering if things were going to be okay. You see, if you find yourself in that situation, the thing that you want to do is turn around immediately. I mean, you want to pull off, make sure it's safe when you do that, but if you are headed the wrong way on a one-way street, you want to turn around immediately. And the same thing is true spiritually. When an individual or a nation is headed in the wrong direction away from God, the best response is to turn around immediately immediately. The Bible has a word for that. It's called repentance. It's something that the prophets called the people of Israel to do more than 118 times in the Old Testament. They called them to turn, to repent. You're going this way, we want you to turn around. And repentance has those two parts to it that it is both to turn away from sin as well as to turn back to God. It's to do a U-turn. You're headed this way, away from the Lord, and what is he calling us to do? He's calling us to say no to our sin and to turn from that, but then to turn all the way to him and to begin again where we have gone off track, to confess our sins and acknowledge it to God and to follow his will for our life. 
And the message of this text is that it is time to do that. It is time to turn to the Lord. And I want to share with you three observations from this great revival that took place in the Old Testament. And the first thing I want to point out in this story is something that Hezekiah demonstrated. Don't let your past hold you back from turning to the Lord. Don't let your past hold you back from turning to the Lord. I want to tell you a little bit about Hezekiah's father. We're going to start the story there in chapter 8 if you want to look at it. It said that Ahaz, the king of Judah, was 20 years old when he became king and he reigned in Jerusalem 16 years. But unlike David, his father, he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord. And you remember the kings of Judah, they are being compared to David, that great leader that God had put in place when he formed this nation of Israel. Instead, Ahaz walked in the ways of the kings of Israel, and he also made cast idols for worshiping the Baals. He burned sacrifices in the valley of Ben-Hinnom, and he sacrificed his sons in the fire. Following the detestable ways of the nations, the Lord had driven out before the Israelites. He offered sacrifices and burned incense at the high places on the hilltops and under every spreading tree. So here is this king, Ahaz. 20 years old, he becomes king, and for 16 years he will reign in Judah, and he is a wicked king. He's one of the worst. And you go through this list of what he did. I mean, making idols to worship the Baals and leading Judah in that direction. Burning sacrifices in the valley of Ben-Hinnom. Even offering his own sons as children, as infants, to this god Molech, where they would create this image of a god that was kind of like a, a big... Uh, cast uh, metal, and it would have a belly in it where the fire was uh, built, and then they would roll these children down into the belly of that fire to be killed. And these kind of pagan practices were things that the Canaanites had done. I mean, he was doing all of the things that they had done, which was the reason that God had driven them out of that land in the first place. And it is no wonder that verse 5 follows this and says, Therefore the Lord his God handed him over to the king of Aram. That's the king of Syria. And the Arameans defeated him and took many of his people as prisoners and brought them to Damascus. And not only that, but then he was also defeated by the northern ten tribes of Israel in a battle where he lost more than 120,000 men in one day. He was a weak king, he was an ungodly king, he was a wicked king. And when you look at his life, as you continue in this chapter, you learn more that Ahaz, uh, rather than turning to the Lord in repentance, turned away from God, and he became more obstinate in his sin. Uh, he closed the doors of the temple he appealed to Assyria to come and to help him. Assyria was the dominant power at that time. Uh, they were the Middle Eastern power that was on the rise, and they did come, and they uh, defeated Aram and the other nations that were oppressing Judah at that time, but it was not without cost. It would make Judah a vassal to this Assyrian empire, 
and ultimately lead to the time when Assyria would come against them as well. He worshipped and offered sacrifices to the gods of Damascus who had defeated him. So here you have a king. For 16 years, Ahaz led Judah away from the Lord. And then came Hezekiah. Then came Hezekiah, his son. He would be 25 years old when he would become king, and he would rule in Judah for 29 years. But from the chronology we have that's given here in the book of Chronicles, we learn that Hezekiah was probably born when his dad, this Ahaz, was just a teenager, maybe around the years 13 or 14. That says something about Ahaz. We don't know who raised Hezekiah. We do know from the text that his mother, his mother's name was Abijah. Abijah was a daughter of Zechariah, and her name means the Lord is my father. The Lord is my father. We don't know if it was Abijah who pointed him to the Lord. Was it a grandparent who pointed him to the Lord? But somewhere along the way, God did this work in Hezekiah's life where he just rejected what his dad was doing. He was appalled by it, and he chose to walk with God. Hezekiah chose to walk with God and refused to let the past hold him back. And I think that is really significant because sometimes people look at their own life and they look at their past and they feel like, you don't know what my past was like. You don't know the home I grew up in. Maybe you were abused in your home. Maybe you had parents who didn't know Christ. Maybe you grew up and there were other circumstances that made your childhood really difficult. And sometimes people look at that and they say, God could never love me or God could never use me. And that's not true. We don't need to be bound by our past. We don't need to be held in. That's just a lie of Satan who wants to keep people in bondage and darkness. You can be free of that if you will come to Christ and follow his will for your life. Every year we see that happen in our children's ministry and student ministry. Uh, even this white rose today is an example of that, of a young a teenager who really had a lot of questions and struggles in her life. And just through the invitation of someone, a friend, who said, hey, why don't you come on up? A chance to talk, a place to be with other Christians and to see the difference God has made in their life, she came to know Christ. Praise the Lord. You know, and, and that happens. We've had uh, students come to our youth group that don't have a church background that have come from some pretty rough situations and they come to hear about God. And to know that there's a God who loves them and knows their name is a pretty powerful thing. Don't let your past hold you back. And don't let that be an excuse for not following the Lord. There's a story that I read concerning one of our presidents. Many of you know that I like reading history, and I've been reading biographies of each of our presidents. And there's a story that Dwight Eisenhower shared about his mother in a lesson that she taught him. He described his mother as a smart and saintly lady. He said, often in this job, I wished I could consult her when he was president, but she is in heaven. However, many times I have felt that I knew what she would say. One night in their farm home, Mrs. Eisenhower was playing a card game with her boys. 
Now, don't get me wrong, he said. It was not with those cards that have kings and queens and jacks and spades, you know. It was in that time period when uh, there were a lot of uh, believers who didn't want to play a card game with a deck of cards like that. Instead, it was a game called Flinch. Anybody ever remember Flinch? Yeah, a few of us probably played that as a kid. I did too. And he said, anyway, mother was the dealer, and she dealt me a very bad hand. And I began to complain. And mother said, boys, put down your cards. I want to say something particularly to Dwight. And she looked at him, and she said, you are in a card game in your home with your mother and brothers who love you. But out in the world, you will be dealt bad hands without love. And here is some advice for you boys. Take those bad hands without complaining and play them out. Ask God to help you and you will win the important game called life. And the president added, I've tried to follow that wise advice always. Can you imagine what that would have been like for him being the commander of the Allied forces in World War II? Things don't go quite as you plan. And what do you do? You got to deal with what comes. You can't change the circumstances of your life. You take those things that come and you make the best of them and you trust God and you grow through them. And you use those circumstances in your life and mine as opportunities to say, okay, God, what is it that you want to teach me? Or how can you be glorified through this? Or is there something that I need to change? Is there some sin in my life I need to confess and turn from? Don't let the past keep you from following the Lord. The second thing we see in Hezekiah's life is that he put first things first. Look at chapter 29. Hezekiah was 25 years old when he became king. He reigned in Jerusalem 29 years. His mother's name was Abijah, daughter of Zechariah, and he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, just as his father David had done. And then notice verse 3. In the first month of the first year of his reign, he opened the doors of the temple of the Lord and repaired them. It's like the very first thing he did under this new administration is we are going to open the doors of the temple. And we are going to begin again to worship the Lord. I've seen what's happened when my father has led us astray from that, and he was not going to do that. And you go through this chapter, what he does is he calls in the priests and the Levites. He instructs them to purify themselves and to purify the temple. And they have this big house cleaning. They go in and they take out all of these idols that were made and set up in the temple of the Lord or in the courtyard around it. They clean all that out. It's thrown into the Kidron Valley. They purify the, uh, and the articles that are to be used in the worship of the Lord. They sacrifice to the Lord. They go through all the instructions that were given to Moses in the first five books of the Old Testament. And Hezekiah himself made a covenant with the Lord, a covenant that he would follow the Lord his God and him only. He put it in writing. I mean, he was that serious about it. He wanted it to be something that he would remember and that the people would see. 
He called the people together, and they worshiped, and they sang to the Lord. And when the temple was open and the priests had purified themselves and the Levites were ready to lead in worship, he instructed the musicians to stand at their appointed positions. And when they came, they sang and they played the instruments, and there was this great celebration. And at the end of chapter 29, in verse 36, it said, Hezekiah and all the people rejoiced at what God had brought about for his people because it was done so quickly. It was done so quickly. It is one of the most remarkable revivals in the history in the Old Testament because of its speed. Hezekiah began the Reformation in the first month, and within two months, the whole land was affected, and there was this spiritual revival that was sweeping across Judah. There's no doubt it was God's timing, but I have to think that also 16 years of living under a wicked, ungodly king had something to do with it. The people were ready for change. Has God done that in America's history? Yes, he has. I want us to look today at what was called the prayer revival of 1857-58. In those years, in the United States, there were a lot of things going on, and this revival is probably the closest we have had to a national revival that just swept across the country, the whole country. It's also been called the businessmen's revival because that's where it began. In those years leading up to this revival, the years 1840 to 1860, the United States was going through a period of growth. It would grow from 23 million people to over 31 million people. Cities like New York, Philadelphia, Chicago were booming and growing. Business was doing well. Railroads were expanding across the country, and people were prospering. Uh, there was excitement. The world was looking pretty good, and people were feeling pretty good about a lot of these things going on. But there were also problems. There were gang riots in New York on the 4th of July. People didn't trust the new immigrants that were coming into the country. You know, I think it's interesting. I mean, we have immigration issues and topics, and our government's trying to figure out today, you know, how are we going to do this whole thing with immigration? And that was going on there. It's interesting, though, that the immigrants at that time that they didn't trust were the Irish and the Italians who were coming into the country. And partly they didn't trust them because they were Catholic, and America at that time was largely Protestant. And so you have this conflict with new immigrants and religion and what's going to happen here in America. Slavery was dividing the country. And on March 6, 1857, the Supreme Court made one of its most notorious decisions ever, the Dred Scott decision, where they ruled that African Americans and their children could not be U.S. citizens. And churches were not keeping up with the population growth. In Chicago at that time, that was a city of over 100,000 people, there were only 70 churches, but there were more than 100 brothels. And seeing all of this, what was going on in the country, God put it on the heart of a layman named Jeremiah Lanfear to pray. 
He was a businessman. He was working in a church in New York City as a lay missionary, lay volunteer, and helping out there. And he had it on his heart to pray, and he invited businessmen to come to a lunch hour prayer meeting. The date of that first meeting was September 23, 1857. The first week, six people came, and they met for prayer in that hour. The next week, there were 20 people who came. And the following week, then 30, and then they needed to start looking for a bigger room because after that came 100, and then 200, and this would continue to grow to about 1,000 people coming together to pray. Why that rapid growth? Well, one week after this first prayer meeting on September 23rd, the stock market crashed. Banks in Chicago and Philadelphia failed. Three days later, a bank run in New York City crippled the financial system. Thousands were out of work. Many lost everything. Their fortunes were built on sand, and it was gone now in a turn of what happened on Wall Street. Sound familiar? Sound like things that God does in our day and generation as well? And so many were now out of work, and they had time to pray, and they had a reason to pray. And prayer meetings started all across the country. God used the circumstances of what was going on in the nation to call people to pray. But most of all, people were getting right with God, seeing the folly of putting their trust in the cares and the riches of this world. And they were putting first things first in their life. And God began to work in our nation. Now, I'm going to put that on hold. We're going to come back, and I'll tell you the rest of the story in a little bit. But let's go back to another thing we can learn from Hezekiah. Hezekiah chose to put first things first in his life. But thirdly, Hezekiah also called the people to turn to the Lord in repentance. And then that third point, he said, turn to the Lord, and he will turn to you. And we'll see the fruit of that in chapter 30 through 32. Hezekiah sent couriers throughout Israel and Judah, and he invited them to come to celebrate the Passover in Jerusalem. So he's sending these messengers out throughout the northern ten tribes of Israel, which was a unique thing, as well as Judah. He's sending them to Ephraim and Manasseh, and he's calling people from all over to come. And what's going on historically right now is that, remember Assyria, who the king of Ahaz had called to help? Well, Assyria sort of liked it in Israel, and they set up a siege against Samaria, the capital of the northern ten tribes. And it's at this time in history when there will be there Three years they will lay siege to the city of Samaria, and it will fall in 722 B.C. And so Assyria is on the doorstep. There's a sense of urgency that we need to pray because of what is going on. Because once they're done there, there's going to come that point where Assyria will turn and come against Judah as well. So he called people to pray, to celebrate the Passover. Nothing had been done like this since the days of Solomon. And for the writer of Scripture here in Chronicles, Hezekiah is like a new Solomon, uniting the people around their commitment to the Lord. They decided to celebrate this Passover in the second month. Normally it would be done in the first month, 
But the priests, there weren't enough of them who had purified themselves yet to be able to handle all the people. And secondly, they wanted to give people time to come, to travel all that distance, to come down to Jerusalem to have this great Passover celebration. So they waited and they prepared. The letter that the king wrote and sent to the people is actually recorded here. I mean, we can read this historical document that was sent out to all of these people here in Scripture. Oop, excuse me on that. I'm not sure what triggered that one. But let me read it for you. It begins in verse 6. At the king's command, couriers went throughout Israel and Judah with letters from the king and from his officials that read, People of Israel, return to the Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, that he may return to you who are left and who have escaped from the hand of the kings of Assyria. Do not be like your fathers and brothers who were unfaithful to the Lord, the God of their fathers, so that he made them an object of horror, as you see. Do not be stiff-necked as your fathers were. Submit to the Lord. Come to the sanctuary which he has consecrated forever. Serve the Lord your God so that his fierce anger will turn away from you. And if you return to the Lord... Then your brothers and your children will be shown compassion by their captors and will come back to this land, for the Lord your God is gracious and compassionate. He will not turn his face from you if you return to him. And so here's this great call. Come, come to the Lord. Turn to him. Submit to the Lord. Come to the sanctuary. Serve the Lord. All of these items that are included in that letter. It sounds a lot like what we say when we call you to worship the Lord, to be growing in your relationship with the Lord, and to serve the Lord. Worship, grow, serve. In verse 10, we see, though, that some ridiculed those couriers. Some scorned them. Some made fun of them. What do you think you're doing? We're not going to do that. That's going to happen in every generation, as we go out and share the good news of the gospel, there are going to be those whose hearts are open, who will respond to Christ, and there are going to be other people who will go, blow it off. They don't want anything to do with that. They don't believe in that. And they are not ready yet to hear. The people came together. They celebrated this Passover with joy. The priests blessed the people and prayed for them. And God heard their prayer god heard their prayer and began to move another sign of the revival that took place is how generously the people gave in chapter 31 there's a story of how they brought their gifts and worshiped and how hezekiah was just so pleased as the people willingly gave and brought their offering to the lord whenever hearts are changed and people come to know christ one of the signs of that is just People love to give generously, and they see God work. And two other stories, which we don't have time to tell them all in full detail today, but how God answered their prayers, was one, when that day came, when Assyria came up against Judah and was going to attack Jerusalem, Jerusalem was surrounded by an army of more than 185,000 warriors that were around them. And Hezekiah saw that, and he heard their taunts and their mocking. And Hezekiah prayed, and Isaiah the prophet, who was a friend of the king, also prayed and spread out this letter before the Lord, and God answered. 
And that very night, God sent an angel of the Lord who destroyed the army of the Syrians, 185,000 men in a single night. He was defeated. The ruler, the leader of that army turned back, went back to Nineveh and Assyria, where later he was killed by his very own people. God protected them, watched over them. Even the life of Hezekiah, Hezekiah's life when he had fallen ill and it looked like he was going to die, prayed to the Lord and God extended his life by 15 years. God heard the prayers of his people. God answers when we pray. So what happened when people began to pray in that revival in 1857 and 1858? What God did in response to the prayers of his people was truly remarkable. The revival spread across the country from Maine to California. There were prayer gatherings in cities all across the country, places like Pittsburgh or Philadelphia or Cleveland. In Cleveland, more than 2,000 people met daily for prayer. They met daily for prayer. In Columbus, Ohio, the governor of Ohio shared his testimony. He had come to know Christ. He brought some in that meeting to tears as he shared what God had done to change his heart and bring him into a relationship with God through this great revival. In Chicago, D.L. Moody, recognize that name from history. He started a Sunday school class and he invited kids off of the street. It was the beginning of his ministry. D.L. Moody was so impressed by that revival in 1857, 1858, that ever after, he would always talk about that revival, and he would say, God, do it again. God, do it again. He longed to see that kind of sweeping change come across America. And even in Appleton, Wisconsin, not too far from here, across the border, a local newspaper had this article. It said that, the Grand Revival, this revival they were talking about, is becoming a universal thing throughout the Union. All our exchanges from those ponderous city dailies down to the smallest of country weeklies fill their columns to overflowing with accounts of revivals, businessmen's meetings, protracted meetings, which feature we are glad to behold in all of them. The excitement has spread from city to city and from village to village, and we hope it may continue to spread from place to place and from country to country until the whole world is following in the narrow path. Let the work go on. Amen. Pretty cool, isn't that, to think about what God was doing and how he began to move and stir. In the year that followed, more than one million people came to know Christ and joined the church. If you uh, kind of did a ratio, that would be like more than 10 million people coming to Christ in the United States this year to have a comparable revival. At its peak, around 50,000 people a week were converted and came to know Christ as Savior and Lord. Wow. It was God's work. It wasn't flashy. It wasn't driven by human personality. I mean, even Jeremiah Lanfear did not lead this. He was just kind of the guy who had an idea and started and said, let's pray. It wasn't like he was a speaker going across the country to say, you need to do this in every place. There was no 
personality associated with this. It wasn't like great evangelists that were building the fires and doing this. It was a lot of ordinary people in different places who really did three things. They came together to pray. They invited their friends and their neighbors to church. And they shared the gospel as they had opportunity. They might share a track. They might give a Bible to someone who didn't have one, or they might tell their testimony. It was ordinary things that were happening that ordinary believers were doing. That's why we say it was such a great work of the Holy Spirit. And I say, do it again, Lord. Do it again in our day, in our generation. You see, there's no doubt that we need to pray for America to turn back to the Lord. But it starts with us first. It always starts with the church. It starts with God's people who will take to heart a passage like 2 Chronicles 7:14, That if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and turn from their sin and seek my face, then I will hear from heaven and I'll forgive their sin and I will heal their land god do it again this fall we want to have uh, some prayer meetings starting in september we're going to invite you to come and to pray with us if you've never done that before it's a place where you can learn to pray be encouraged to pray or if you have a heart for prayer to come as we pray for our church or community our nation but i would ask you today how's your heart how's your heart and mine Is there any unconfessed sin? Anything that you need to bring before the Lord to be right with him? Any willful disobedience or any going astray? Then it's time to turn. To turn away from sin and turn back to the Lord. It's time. It's time to get right with God. Let's pray. Father, you know the condition of our heart. And we just sit here today and we say, send your Holy Spirit to search our hearts, to purify us just like you purified the priests and the Levites so that they were ready for service. God, we want to be fit for your use. We want our worship to be honoring to you. We want to speak with conviction. We want to share the hope that you've given us because of Christ. And Father, would you just move in our country, not just here, but in churches all across America, stirring our hearts to pray. It's time. It's time. And we're calling for you to act once again. Amen.